Welcome to another edition of The Best Business Mind, hosted by serial entrepreneur and author Mark Kramer. Tune into The Best Business Minds to listen to thought-provoking interviews with best-selling business book authors who are today's leading innovators, entrepreneurs, and industry experts from around the globe. Welcome to another edition of The Best Business Minds, where we interview business leaders and academics that write thought-provoking books. I'm Mark Kramer, serial entrepreneur who consults with family businesses and entrepreneurs. Today, our guest is Mark Harari, author of Lobster on a Cheese Plate. Mark, welcome. Hi, Mark. How are you? Excellent, excellent. Mark, tell us a little bit about your background, if you would. Yeah, for sure. I um, So I've been in marketing for over 20 years. Um, yeah, actually, funny thing, I, I kind of backed into it. I, I went into college. I never actually graduated. I didn't know what I was. I was just taking classes that interested me. I didn't really know what I was doing. I was a psych major, but I was taking like psychology and writing courses and um, all that kind of stuff. And I just didn't know what I was going to do with any of that. So um, I left, I got a job. I ended up getting married and she needed me to get a real job because <laughs> I was waiting tables. And she said, if you want to get married, you're going to not be a waiter. So I said, okay. And I started uh, working at 84 Lumber, selling lumber to contractors. And some of my clients and accounts, they would, you know, I got to know them and they would start talking to me about their marketing woes and they'd show me some of their marketing collateral and stuff. And I just started giving them input and feedback on it. I knew something about creative writing. I knew how to, I knew some human psychology and that kind of thing. And next thing I knew, some guys wanted to start paying me on the side to do their stuff for them. And I kind of backed into it. And then I started like this whole freelance side hustle. And, uh, and then it just took off from there. I decided I wanted to do this professionally and pretty much just started reading every possible book and everything I could about marketing and learned as much as I possibly could and and just took off from there. I ended up starting a, a remodeling company with one of the one of my clients actually wanted to um, roll off and start his own company, asked me to join him and do the marketing. And so I did that for about six or seven years and and uh and then we shut that down, moved on to do something else. And I kind of bounced around for a little bit and ended up here at Remodelers Advantage. Uh, we, we're an international consulting firm for remodelers, uh, business owners, helping them improve their businesses. And uh, I was doing most of the marketing for, for Remodelers Advantage. And then that kind of started to spin off into me doing marketing as, as consulting and, and trainings and for our clients. And, and then that's kind of how that leg of my career started well, and here we I, are read a book yeah, and, and here we are and, and by the way what really drew me to this book was the title why lobster on the cheese plate yeah it's you know the title funny enough is probably the last thing to come from the book it was just working title marketing book right and and i decided i wanted to write this book that was going to help small business owners there's so many good books out there but there's two big problems with them one most of them are just full of marketing jargon and stuff that you, you just got to go with Google next to you looking upwards all the time. And, and the other thing is most books that are about marketing are all about uh, tactics. You know, they don't really get to the, the higher level strategic stuff that you need to really be focused on before you get into tactical things. Uh, 
but anyway, so an aside there, but so anyway, marketing book, I just, I wasn't coming up with a title and it, it happened quite by accident. I was sitting there one night. So, um, it's a Friday night. Kids go down in the basement to play PlayStation and all that stuff. And my wife puts together a nice plate of assorted cheeses, a nice cheese plate. Mark, I love cheese. <laughs> there, there isn't a cheese I don't like. I love cheese. Cheese galore. Good uh, brie. Bring it on. I love cheese. Nice oil and vinegar, uh, olives and bread. So anyway, so she brings this plate over. And how pathetic life can get, I guess, when you get to, to my age is mm -hmm. I'm sitting there and I'm so excited. I'm trying to decide which slice, which which one I'm going to bite into first. What am I going to wet my palate with first? Right. And I'm sitting there trying to pick which cheese is going to be my first bite. And then the whole thing clicked for me because that's really what the book's about. It's it's how to stand out. This cheese plate was a representation of what all a small business owners, clients or customers go through regularly. They have this wonderful plate of cheese that they don't know which one they're supposed to go with, right? Because your competitors, odds are, are good at what they do. Otherwise, they'd be out of business. So it's just a land of really good choices. That's what that cheese plate was to me, a land of really good choices. And that's what you are to your customers, one of a few good choices. And if you don't stand out, then you're just a, another good choice on the plate of cheese. And, and then the lobster just, well, I liked lobster too. So that just kind of <laughs> continued, continued the metaphor. So if, if there's a lobster on a cheese plate, then that's the obvious choice. You're going to eat the lobster first, then maybe go back for cheese, but the lobster stands out. That's the obvious choice on the cheese plate. So that's what the, what the title is all about. How do you define marketing and sales? Because often salespeople call what they do marketing. That's, that's a good question. Yeah. So hmm, how, how do I, well, I'd say marketing is about really getting, getting your message and getting yourself known to, to the, to the world at large, right? Sales is in my, my opinion, most sales shouldn't be a salesperson's job is to sell you on the product. It's to guide you through the process and answer any questions you might have and be more consultative to you. If you're doing it right, if you're doing what you do, well, people are already sold on your service or your product before the salesman's in the picture. And so the salesman's or salesperson's job, I should say, is to, to navigate any questions you might have and, and be a, a guide to you because you don't know what you don't know and help you get fitted to the right element or component within the brand. I've often found that, in fact, uh, when you go to a car dealership, the guy with the least amount of energy has all these sales awards. And that's because yeah. he's not trying to push. He comes in and he kind of knows you're already there for a car. And then he just asks you some questions. Is this for family and drills down and finds out what your interests are. And that's it. It's, it's that simple. And I think most people sell themselves. A salesman doesn't sell, but a good salesman can provide all the right education to help make an informed decision. I couldn't agree more. You know, it's transactional selling versus cons consultative selling, right? And yeah. I don't, I don't want a transactional salesperson on my team. I want a consultant, consultative salesman. Yeah, yeah. How do you define? Uh, how? Please explain the difference between qualitative and quanti uh, quantitative information, because I think people are often confused about that. That's a great question. So, quantitative is well, the easiest way. It's also shortened to quant. 
<clears throat> to, to avoid confusion, you can think of quantity with quantitative. So quantitative has to do with measurable dry facts. So anything you can put numbers to or, or, or measurable data. So, you know, age, sex, income level, any of these measurable dry facts are going to be quantitative uh, data sets. The qualitative has to do with the not easily measurable stuff. It's, it's, it's what inspires its dreams, its motivations of, of, of your target, those kinds of things. It's, it's the why behind the what. It's, it's, it's like kind of the psychographic type of stuff. You write that companies should have a written marketing plan. What information should it contain and how often should it be written? Oftentimes, I see entrepreneurs kind of riding by the seat of their pants uh, when it comes to this. What, what's your take on this? Yeah, so and in the book, I kind of delineate the difference between, so there, you're probably going to have a marketing plan as part of a, a business plan. It's supposed to be a component of it. And, and in that regard, you're going to have things like a SWOT analysis and those types of components. And that type of marketing plan, really, you're probably only revisiting once every few years um, to, to update it. But you should have a strategic annual plan for your marketing efforts for the coming year to, to hit your, your goals, your sales goals and, and what have you. And more often than not, as you said, Mark, the people are just kind of going off the off the cuff, like we'll we'll figure this out. One of the biggest mistakes I have, I see, I, I get them all the time. It's it's the most common thing. My members will send me um, send me their business plan, air quotes on that, um, for a quick review. Like, hey, does this look good? Am I on the right track? And usually, it's almost always not a business plan. It's just a marketing budget. And that's right. what so many people do. They just list all these tactics down and then put dollar amounts next to them and then say, here's my marketing plan for the year. And, you know, that's not a plan. <laughs> I was actually just talking to someone uh, a couple months ago about it. And it just struck me. It's like, could you imagine if if uh, a, a general came in to, to, the, to the president or the admiral and said, OK, I got a, I got this plan for 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 the war. Uh, here it is. I need 60 million dollars for tanks. $200 million for guns and, you know, fifth, you know, well, okay. So that's what you need, but what's the plan? No, that's my plan. <laughs> now can I have my money? So, you know, it doesn't work that way. You need, you need the plan. And so that's what I kind of spell out. You got to start with the um, it's, it's really six components. You got to start with the, the, the objective. What is it I'm trying to achieve? If you don't know what you're trying to achieve, you can't build a plan around it. And then from the objective, you can start getting into the strategies involved that you can utilize to achieve that objective. And only then can you then determine the tactics to execute the strategies. So it's objectives, then strategies, then tactics, and then you start, and now you're on step four. Now you kind of finally start putting the budget together, right? And then once you've done that, then you can go back and say, because odds are you've put together this, it's a dream list at this point of what you want to do to accomplish that goal. More often than not, you're over budget. So now you start pairing back and taking out different tactics and strategies so that you can fit that budget. Um, and, and strategies and tactics are often really confused a lot. I, I give an example in, in the book uh, to, to really kind of simplify it if using weight loss. And you know, weight loss, most people will think that that's a tactic, but weight loss is a strategy because you can't do it or buy it. And that's what a a strategy is something you can't do or buy. 
And then they'll say, well, Mark, you can, you can lose weight. And to that, I say, no, you actually can't. If you describe losing weight, you're going to list all the tactics involved to lose weight. Like I'm going to eat less, or I'm going to use the stairs, and I'm going to run and not eat cake and all these things. You, there's, there's no actual activity of losing weight other than it just being lost like a set of keys, right? You can't, I wish I could do that with, with my uh, weight, but I can't. So, um, so yeah, but, but I go through that and that's really what you need to do. And that's an exercise you need to do every year. It's an annual thing. And if you're not, if you're not doing that, then you don't have the plan to execute. You can't just throw a bunch of tactics at something without, without knowing the strategy behind it. I can't agree with you more. I've worked with so many clients because I work as an outsourced chief marketing officer developing and implementing plans. And when I ask them for their plan, oftentimes they just give me the financials for the whole company and <laughs> they mark it up by like, you know, 3%. And I'm like, no. Or I work with a, um, a vice president of a big consumer products company. She said 10% of sales will be marketing. I said, you're now a startup. You are not um, part of this multi-billion dollar company anymore. And we need to know specifically what you're going to do and who they're for, because oftentimes, you know, they're forgetting that they're marketing to a few different groups. They're marketing to the decision maker. They're marketing to the check writer. They're marketing to vendors to get them on board. They're marketing to the media. And each right. one has a different message and each one has a different budget. You write about getting to know your customer and conducting a survey. You give an example in the book of sending out a certain amount of survey uh, surveys to get a respectable number. How many do you believe that you need to be to get to give you substantive information? And what are sample questions that uh, you might provide that will be a valuable insight that will get you the valuable insights that you need? Wow, wow, there's a lot to unpack there. So, um, so yeah, so. Uh, if you're going to do surveys of uh, to get more information on on your your clients and and your your prospects, there's uh, a French mathematician came up with the number. He 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 proved the uh, the central limit theorem, and I don't know why the number's thirty, but it's thirty. You need thirty responses, and he proved that if if you get thirty responses, that that should give you a basically. Uh, that will scale. So that's the number. If, if you've got 30 responses, then it will scale to the make it. What the, what's the term he said? Um, it, it, everything will be basically normalized with 30. So really the number of responses you need, though, it depends on your response rate or how many people you should be surveying, right? Because if, if you get 50% response rate, then you only need 60 people to participate in the study and you get your 30. Uh, but 50% is probably not realistic. So now you got to try to figure out what your response rate is going to be. And that's how many people you need. So what ends up happening, I mean, if you're getting like a 10% response rate or, or less, you, I mean, you're going to need hundreds of people in order to get the 30 requisite responses so that you have actionable data that will scale. And for, for a lot of small businesses, if, if that's where you're getting into, you might not have six, 600, 700 clients or prospects to call on to take a survey. So you shouldn't even be doing it because you're not going to get the 30. And to be realistic, you should probably, because you want 30 of any segment, you want to be able to segment your list. So if you want to look at the data, say whatever your questions are, uh, and you want to segment it by by male or female or, or married to single, we well, need 30 responses per, per group in order to 
have that information scale reliably. So you could be in need of, of thousands. And that's going back to the quantitative data, right? So if you can't do that, then you go to qualitative methods and qualitative methods don't need 30 people because there's nothing measurable there. Those are more things like one-on-one -on -one interviews and, and body language and stuff like that. So um, yeah, did I answer your question? So 30 responses, but it's gonna, it's gonna depend on how many people respond in order for you to get to 30, how many people you need. I worked for, I, I taught 10 years at Wharton. I worked for the guy who wrote the definitive books on marketing, Dr. Len Lodish. And he said that you need a minimum of a hundred, a conjoint survey to get yeah. substantive information. But I found that once I did 25 interviews, pretty much they were all the same thereafter. And so I, I would kind of agree with the guy who said 30 is a good yeah. number to get because I really didn't find anything between 25 and a hundred and 25 and a thousand. Uh, responses. So and I went, thought that was went, pretty interesting. You said you went to Wharton? Yeah, I taught at Wharton for 10 years. Oh, you taught at, taught at Wharton. Maybe yeah, you the, taught my, the MBA uh, program. That's awesome. Our, our lead uh, consultant uh, went to Wharton and every time he walks in, he's wearing a Wharton sweatshirt or hat or something. It's like, uh, where did you go to school? <laughs> that's for another discussion, but I can say this, that I've taught at about 10 different schools. And that's the only school that they saw me wearing the hat or the shirt. The people literally stopped me in the street to ask me questions. Yep. Um, yeah, how funny. do you build a brand that people identify with? Because you know everybody wants to, you know, oh, we got to brand this, and they think by buying T-shirts and hats and mugs that they're branding. But you know, right. we all become uh, a brand by being identified. You're you're a brand. I'm a brand. People know us for whatever we are. So how do you go in business to build that brand? What, what's, your, what's your opinion on that? Great, great question. So it, it all starts with, you can't, you can't build your brand until you've identified your target customer. And, and when I say target, I do mean target, not targets. It's not plural. You need, you need one target customer, the one ideal perfect customer that you wish you could clone over and over again. And once you've identified that target, then you can start branding yourself because you're going to be able to connect. You, you know what you're, who you're connecting with. And so you sh your brand should act like, you know, we like people that are like us. If you think about any of your closest friends, they probably like the same things you're into. You, you know, you, 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 we like to hang out. We, we're a tribal species and we like to get together with people that are similar to us. So the same is true of a brand. And we want to be a part of brands that are like us. So your brand should be mirroring your target customer. And from, from the way you talk, from the messaging, from, from your colors, from the way that everybody dresses, you know, everything about your brand should mirror your customer's uh, psychographic data, the, the, the beliefs, the, the desires, the wants, the needs of, of your target. Once you've identified the target, that's an easier road to, to, to branding yourself successfully. I think you become a brand by the fact that you're known for something. So like when we think of search, we think of Google, we think of social media, we think of Facebook, that you're so good at something that people mm -hmm. automatically associate you with that. And now you've got to layer on all the other things uh, and that helps with your branding. We have a question from the audience. What is your advice for finding that customer, especially for a technology company that cannot interact with customers? 
So how do you go and identify that customer and, and, and then become known to them? You know, I don't know that, I wouldn't necessarily go in that direction of trying to find them. If you're, unless you're starting a new business, if you've already been in business, you, you probably already have identified your target customer because you have, I, go, I would go to my best customers who are my best customers. And it's a new you know, business. Uh, it's a brand new business. Yeah. And I think a lot of people who listen to the show are a good chunk of them are uh, startup companies or, you know, okay. a new venture product or sales. And so how do you go about doing that, especially when you might not see them? And I've got a product like that too, that I'm rolling out now. Yeah. Well, so to me, that's just, that's the, the best situation because you literally can just choose who you want to be your best customer, who you want to talk to. And well, what I find is a lot of new business owners, startups, they tend to want the brand to be similar, emanate themselves. So the brand will kind of have their, if, if I'm a quirky, funny guy, I want my brand to be quirky and funny. You know what I mean? And, and that's kind of how a, a, a company usually gets started. So, and again, your, your target is typically going, your best target is going to be someone that's like you, I guess. You, you want them to connect with your brand. So I'd probably go that route, but you can literally define who you want to be your your target in that situation, it's it's an open book to you. I have to say I have a new um, venture called Funding Organizer, and it's a common application to apply for commercial bank loans. And it's a sales tool for loan officers to be able to send out instead of taking 48 weeks to collect the information, it can take as little as one business day. So I'm asking loan officers and different bank people advice on what's the best way to market to them. Uh, mm -hmm. And then taking that information and using it as my way of getting in uh, to them. And actually, some of the times the thing that works best is just writing to them saying, I need your advice. People love to give advice. And then I tell them what I'm doing. Then oftentimes it ends up leading, well, let's talk about that. And I, can, I might be able to, we might be able to utilize you. So they right. might, might go and do that. You have a great example in the book about the Hyundai Genesis, which is a gorgeous car being mm -hmm. very cool. But because it's a Hyundai, it doesn't carry the same value as a Mercedes, even if it's just as good or better. How do you get over that if you're Hyundai? I mean, it is a gorgeous car. If anybody's never seen that car, it's really spectacular for a great price. Yeah. And actually, the point um, I'm making in the book is you, you really almost can't. I mean, Hyundai was not successful. And, and for those that, that aren't familiar, uh, I was talking about the, the Hyundai Equus. And that was a car that they wanted to get into the luxury, into the luxury car market. Um, so it was an $80,000 Hyundai. And the point is, you know, you, it's very difficult to reposition a brand once it's been positioned in the marketplace. And Hyundai is not a luxury brand. It's just not. And so they ended up having to discontinue the car. It was a beautiful car but they just weren't selling. And it's one of the, the biggest things. It's the proof is in the pudding. I mean, what's, what's one thing it's, it's about the psychographic, it's the motions and desires. What is someone that spends $80,000 on a car want emotionally from that? And I think it's safe to say that they want other people to know they spent $80,000 on a car, right? It's, it's a badge of honor. Like look at my car and Hyundai emblem on the hood just isn't going to satisfy that need. It, it does not equate in people's minds. If they see a Hyundai emblem on the car, they're thinking you spent 25,000, 30,000 on a car, not, not 80, 90. So Hyundai had to, 
it just was a, a proof that you know positioning is so powerful. Even a company as big as Hyundai isn't able to overcome that. And what they did to overcome it was they did the only thing a company in their position could do. They started a new company. So that that Hyundai Equus is now called a, a, a Genesis um, G90, I think. It's the Genesis G90. And they started this whole new brand. And, and that really goes to speaking about the, the pure, undeniable power of positioning. Uh, a previously unknown brand, brand new to the market, has a better chance of competing with luxury cars than a well-established brand that everybody knows. But the well-established brand holds a different position. So it, it didn't hold a candle to it. And, and the other proof was that in, I think it was 2020, uh, Genesis Motors was the number three luxury car in the United States. So, wow, you know, it just, you, you can't, once you're positioned as one thing, it's incredibly, and if you kind of think back, you've seen some other cars, like one of the, I just did a talk and I kind of, I was out in um, uh, Minnesota and I, I asked everybody if, if I were to say Buick, who's driving a Buick? Give me, give me an example. And people were calling out things like, you know, grandma, grandpa, and things like that. And um, it's so funny because Buick's been spending hundreds of millions of dollars trying to reposition themselves. They had Tiger Woods as a spokesman for quite a while, right? I mean, trying to make that brand more geared towards a younger demographic. And even after a hundred, and I'm, you know, I still, it's working to some degree, but still the fact that I can call that out to the audience and and some of the first things that come out is grandpa's car um, shows that even with hundreds of millions of dollars being dumped into it, it's hard to shake a position in somebody's mind once it's been established. And that goes for people, right? Like you're in a consulting practice and you are known in a certain way. It's almost impossible uh, to break out. And if you take a look at um, what Tesla has done with a fraction of the sales that Toyota and Ford and they're actually, I read the other day, they're worth more than all three of those car companies combined, and they don't even sell as much as a division. Right. That's yeah. fascinating. Wow. Yeah. Uh, and because you, and, and being, it's easier to go down than it is to go up, like BMW, right? Had the mini, is it the mini BMWs? And you can yeah. get in at an inexpensive price and say, mm-hmm. oh, I've got a BMW, um, but you can't do it the other way, which I thought, find to be fascinating. Yeah, we have a, a question from the audience. What do you suggest for businesses that have uh, more than one target market? For example, uh, commercial office space and then construction, post-construction needs. They have different needs and different demands. You think it's best to have two different portfolios for each target customer or just uh, put both aspects into one portfolio? Because I'm finding it very hard for me to just focus on when when both bring income to my company. So this is a successful janitorial service. And so she's got offices, but also people who do construction building those offices. So they're two different segments. So what's your what's your thoughts on this? Yeah, it's, it's a great question. So, and I should probably take a step back to kind of frame that one of the, the whole first section of the book is, is an exercise in creating your, your positioning statement, right? And that's the what guides you through this process. And I liken it, uh, I have six stones in the positioning statement and we go through the process of finding your six stones, right? So um, the first stone is the target. And so the reason I'm, I'm kind of backtracking to explain that is you can only have one target 
But you, if you do have something like that, if you consider something to be, say, divisions in a company, then if it, it, I say, do you want to de-average yourself, right? And so that's that's what we're talking about in this situation. You've got two divisions, so to speak, that are completely going after a completely different audience, a different target. So in that situation, it's okay to have two targets, but what you're doing is you're creating two positioning statements for each target, right? And for each quote unquote division of your company, because they're, they're serving different needs. And if it's okay, Mark, I'll, I'll kind of run through the six stones yeah, real quick. Sure. So, <clears throat> so the six, six positioning stones, the first one's your target, identifying the target customer. Then you identify that target's unmet need, right? It's the problem that your, your, uh, your product or service is, is solving. And then from there, you're going to define your competitive set, which really is just the, the playground, you, you're, the sandbox you're playing in, right? It's, if you're a remodeler, your competitive set would be, I'm a remodeling company. Um, then you identify your point of difference. And that's really the heart of the whole thing. It's, it's, some people call it a unique selling proposition. I never liked that phrase, uh, but, but it's what makes you different. And then the fifth stone are the reasons to believe, and they support the the point of difference stone and and the reasons to believe you have to have it you can't just say trust me it's true you have to prove that you are different in that way and then the sixth and final stone is the brand personality and so <clears throat> the one thing that needs to be consistent throughout is the brand personality that stone would stay the same for the entire company you can't have different personalities within different divisions if you're going to do if you're going to get into that stuff you're basically creating two different brands altogether so you'd get that Hyundai and Genesis situation. These are two completely different companies. But if everything's under the same company umbrella, under the same company logo, then you're going to have one brand personality, one identity from that perspective. But you can have multiple positioning statements for the different divisions. It gets challenging if you're, if you're not far enough, like uh, this, uh, the person that asked this question, if, if you're just trying to say, I'll use remodeling again just because it's off the top of my head, if you've got a remodeler who, who does kitchen and bath remodeling, and he also does basement remodeling, I don't know that that's far enough apart necessarily to de-average and have two different positioning statements, but it possibly could be. So you, you got to kind of tread lightly to that, but you can absolutely have multiple positioning statements. It's just more work. At the end of the day, the, the, the biggest challenge you have, and we're going back to the marketing budget, right? Yeah. The more, the more targets you have, a marketing budget doesn't enjoy economies of scale. So your budget's your budget. So if, if you've got one target, you're committing 100% of your dollar to attracting and nailing that target customer. When you start to get to two or three or four, you're essentially just cutting that in half or, or into quarters, right? And so now I've got, instead of $25,000 to spend, I'm spending 5,000 on this target and 5,000 on that target. And you're at a great disadvantage against the other competitors that are spending the twenty-five thousand over that one target, and you're only spending five. So you, you're doing yourself a disservice if you try to have too many targets. But in a case like that, uh, the 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 person that that asked the question, yeah, it's okay to have two different positioning statements because it sounds like these are completely different situations. How do you create a vision statement that's meaningful to employees, customers, and vendors? It seems like everybody wants to have. You know, vision statement, you walk into the building and it's right behind the receptionist, what the vision statement is. And, right. and a lot of it's bullshit. 
But how do you go and create something that's meaningful to all these different groups? Uh, yeah, that's a that's a good question. Yeah, you know, so the mission, the missions, everybody should have a mission statement, right? That's the per, the purpose of your company to exist. The vision, unlike the mission, is is what your company aspires to be. It's it's what you hope to become one day. It's the driving force, and it's it's pretty important to have one because you can then measure any new decision in your business against that. So going back to that other um, question we just had about the two different targets, if there was a decision to, to start expanding into that other subset of clients, right? That's a question that we would put it against the vision of the company saying, okay, well, does the splitting up into two divisions like this or, or serving this subset uh, achieve this uh, vision, get us closer to our vision? That being said, how do you come up with the vision? Well, in a small enough company, and most I think are, I think it's it's a team effort. All the employees, everybody you got, you get them all in a room. And when we did it here, uh, it took us about, it was about a three or four hour exercise. And it's just, it, it wasn't rocket science. It was just having conversations. What are we doing? What, what do you see the company being in 25 years? What would you like it to be doing in 25 years. And, and with us, because we're a consulting agency, it's all about improving the lives of the remodelers and, and giving them their, their, their family life back and all that. So we get really, you know, helping them achieve their dreams and, and, and legacies and those kinds of things. We're all being, are things that we're being discussed in, in crafting the vision. And really, I think that's all it comes down to. It's not some super secret formula. It's just having a conversation with all the stakeholders in your company Unless you're unless you're at a size, which I don't think many people are uh, on this call, are going to be at like 50, 60, 80 employees. But um, when you get to that level, you probably just want upper management and key stakeholders and key managers involved. But I think it's just a conversation with all employees. And what do you think, Mark? How would you handle a vision statement? I employees uh, in it um, because then they're stakeholders. And I also ask uh, vendors what they think and clients, what they think about, you know, what they want to get out of it. I'd like to bring everybody in as opposed to uh, guessing. I think every entrepreneur, when they found the business, they have a vision of what that is to start with. And then Mm -hmm. as you start to grow, it might start to change some. And the more people who are involved in creating it. And again, I tell people, if you don't think we should have a vision statement, then I don't want to do one. It's got to be real. It's got to be substantive. I mean, we can say, you know, here's what we do and here's who we serve, but we may not have a vision at this particular juncture, at least one we can all agree on. And then I just put it off to the side and do it later. But just to have one to say we have one. uh, Yeah, I agree. You don't want to have we're not we're not doing this exercise to just create a poster here, people. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah. we don't want to just hang something in the lobby. This is something that's going to drive us. And, you know, you you set that that expectation up front and then just have a good heartfelt conversation with your team. Many companies hire full-time salespeople, but not marketing. How big or what does the company need to be uh, to hire a full-time marketing person? For example, a medical device company still developing its product won't need to hire uh, marketing until the product is ready, but they might start hiring sales to kind of start talking to customers about buying them. Your local five-star restaurant doesn't necessarily need a marketing person either because in fact most great restaurants once people taste the food it just gets out, out there organically 
Unlike if you're TGIF Fridays and you spend a lot of money because your food's mediocre, but you need to drive people in because uh, the price sounds good on what, what you're going to give them. So what's your take on that? When do, you, when do you actually need to have a full-time marketing person as opposed to maybe just the outsourcing like some of your clients do to you guys? Yeah. So, um, yeah, so it's, it's a little bit of a, a pet peeve for me because marketing, the marketing department, whether even if it's a department of one, is the redheaded stepchild of a company, right? It's <laughs> nobody needs, we, we don't need marketing. And so it just drives me nuts. I mean, yeah, you need marketing. When can you afford to bring on the marketers is a good question. What size, you know, I, I typically, I don't, I think it's pretty standard across a lot of industries, but um, at least in, in the construction and, and remodeling sectors, uh, it's like anywhere from a two to 6% of revenue is kind of their market spend, marketing spend. And that typically includes the, the marketing uh, position. So I guess it'll depend on that ratio for your company and what size, you know, what, what you can afford to pay them. You always have to have someone, someone, if, if it's the owner, someone's got to be in charge of marketing. It can't be, you know, it does drive me nuts that we'll go out and hire five salespeople tomorrow, but uh, we don't need a marketer to, to do anything because marketing isn't something that you can just flip a switch. Even with the one example you said about uh, the medical company that yeah. doesn't need the marketer until it's it's created. I would argue that yeah, actually you probably need it before it's created no, so that you can start you. you can start that ball rolling. You can't just flip the switch once it's built or created or invented. You got to lay the foundation for it. And um, too many too many times it's the leads, you know, one of the biggest things in our industry is uh, is word of mouth, right? I mean, they most contractors, remodelers, renovators, they live and die by word of mouth. And so they don't think they need marketing. And it's, you, it's when the leads dry up, you can't just flip that switch one day. So if, if the owner's going to do it, that's great. Take a class, listen to a, a great show like yours, Mark, you know, and Thank educate you. yourself, but uh, you got to stay on top of it because it's not something you can just flip a switch on. And what the number is, I, I don't know what size the company is. If, if you're going to bring in a $50,000 uh, entry level person, obviously you, you can start there, uh, but at least outsource it for, for, for the get. I tell them your sales can't possibly be successful without marketing because it's like the D-Day yeah. invasion. The marketing is the battleship shelling the beach, letting them know somebody is coming and who's coming and how powerful they are. And then that. the troops are the salespeople coming in to uh, grab the territory. And without the marketing telling your story and people saying, oh, my gosh, uh, yeah, I would like to hear more about that story. Your salespeople can't possibly be successful or it's just making it hard on them because they're knocking on the door and trying to get in and explain themselves. And, and at the yeah. end of the day, they still need marketing material. You know, like I have a video for my new um, my new venture funding organizer in a, a minute and 27 seconds. It tells a lot. You know, it tells the whole story in a minute, 27 seconds. But if I just call people and try to get in, uh, it's not going to happen. So that's why people just don't put enough into it. A question from the audience, what role should social media play in your marketing, given that most uh, social media is nonsense? And I have to say, and I have this, you know, we have this as part of our questions. I uh, have used for this show, I'm in 53 
LinkedIn groups totaling 3.2 million people. And I thought for sure when I would go and mention, you know, the famous speakers that we have on here, that there wouldn't even be, I wouldn't even have enough Zoom capacity and I have capacity for 500 to handle them when I have a John Chambers who built Cisco Systems or Tim Draper, famous VC. And yet I found six months of trying it, zero. So he's got a good question there. And and there's different types, social media works differently for different types of businesses. So what's your take on that? Yeah, so uh, it's going to get to broken record time with me here, and, and I might frustrate a couple people, but it it starts with your target, right? You, you Once you've identified that target customer, then you'll know all this stuff. And that's why tactics are the last thing I ever talk about. Even in the book, it's probably like the last page of the book, right? Because the tactics are determined by that. If your target lives and breathes on Twitter, and they do everything on Twitter, then guess what? You should be on Twitter and don't waste your time on Instagram because they're not there. And if your target is like you who said all social media is, you know, stupid and a joke, well, then you shouldn't be doing any social media stuff because your target's not there anyway and they're not playing in there. So it all comes back to your target and you should be where your target is. And if they are on social, then do it. But if not, and also whatever you do, don't make the mistake of just trying to be on everything because you can't handle it. I mean, you can't be on Instagram and Facebook and LinkedIn and Twitter and whatever the other th- crazy things are. What's that dancing video thing? TikTok, uh, yeah. TikTok. Yeah, TikTok, right? I, you just can't. And what you end up doing is you're hurting your brand because you can't post on everything. You got all these properties that are stagnant and don't have any activity. So don't make that mistake either. If you're going to do social, in my opinion, pick the one or two places your target lives and, and focus totally on that. Now, I would. what I would do is I would take all all the you know get an instagram brand protect your brand on all the platforms but just have the one post like for example let's say you're not doing instagram have one post on your instagram account that says we're over on facebook follow us here and then uh have a link to it that way if people do find you on instagram they at least know that you're making a conscious effort i'm not act i'm not using instagram come follow me on facebook i i think that i've put on um sporadically on Facebook, a link to my show and almost nobody clicks on like I do 15 minutes later, a picture of my English bulldog uh, when she was alive, 230 likes. And I, and I'll see clients of mine that I've worked with who are, let's say selling backpacks. They expect to see the backpack on Facebook, but they don't expect or care to read about uh, a interview with a business person on Facebook. It just, it doesn't resonate. It's not the right channel to use. I agree. You're you writing that positioning is critical to success. How do you think through what is the right position? And please talk, and you talked about the six positioning stones already, but how do you really think through the right position? Because you, you might think it's one way, but it's not really right. You know, again, it's, it's a, it's a, it's a process that this positioning statement to, to put it together. So you kind of, I don't know that I'm going to answer your question correctly here, but you're, you're going to find out as you're, as you're building out the positioning statement, um, whether you're on the right track, you know, and, and it's a very linear process. It very much goes in that direction of the six stones of identifying them in that way, because 
it builds off of, again, it all starts with your target because that's what your position is. I should take a step back and really kind of define position. I mean, so, you know, your position, you don't own it. You don't own your position. You, your position belongs to everyone else because your position is the place you hold in the customer's mind relative to your competition. So you don't own your position. The best you can do is positioning which is the act of trying to influence that, uh, but you don't own your position. So if, you know, again, I'll, I stick with remodeling because it's just the most frequent, it's my universe. But if a guy's driving around, he's got a beat up truck with his logo on it and it's rusted out, you know, people are going to have a position on it. He can, it's hard to change. It's not going to yeah. be good. And then he finally gets the truck fixed and all that. But once you've established that position in somebody's mind, you, it's hard. Like I already went back to the Buick example or the, Hyundai. Once that position's established in somebody's mind, it's real. It's not impossible, but it is so hard to change it. So, to, to answer your question, it's almost you. you if, if you've been in business for a while, uh, if you find out you you might have to just kind of live with what your position is because it's hard to change. It's, it's extremely expensive. Um, if you're new in a startup, then definitely want to give it really some critical thought. Do not overlook this step and and deliberately set your position the way you want to be positioned. Because once you've established that, you know, I, I think I use an example in the book. I don't remember now. I use so many examples on things uh, of McDonald's. You know, if McDonald's decided to open one location across the street from you, and they're going to call that a a, a five star elegant restaurant, you know, you're not just going to accept that. You know, they, even if they offer valley parking, put tablecloths on the tables and it's just not going to work. And McDonald's is not a place you take your wife on her 25th wedding anniversary. Uh, not if you want to get to 26. Right. So, <laughs> uh, uh, so it's not going to work. You, your position is your position. And you don't own it. So your goal is to try to influence it as best as you can. And that's the process we go through in the book of making sure you got that situated. You mentioned the point of difference that you you that your target wants wants it, none of your competitors can claim it, and you can prove it. How often does that happen outside of technology? Like, you know, you have a pizza parlor, you have management consulting firm, you are, you know, a, a myriad of things that aren't necessarily different. So how do you how do you make that differentiator? It's an awesome question. That's the hardest hands down the hardest stone to uncover for your business. Um, what makes you different? It's, I mean, it is the heart of the positioning statement. It's why it's the, why someone should choose you over the competition. And, you know, I give I give tons of exercises and different solutions to trying to, to find it. The, the fact of the matter is some companies just will never find one. And, and in that situation, you just got to do your best to, to limit it to as few people that can claim it as possible. Because here, here's the thing, if you don't have a point of difference stone, then, and, and any of your competitors can claim the same thing you're claiming, then all you've done is commoditized your business. You're, you're, you're not any different. So when a client's looking at choice A, B, and C, everything looks the same. You guys all have a wonderful portfolio. All of this stuff is great. You got great reviews. I have nothing to, there's no tiebreaker. There's only one tiebreaker left. And guess what the tiebreaker is? Price, right? So, And you don't want to go now, there. You don't want to go there. You're just a commodity now. And, and you're losing money, losing money. 
And so now everybody's racing to the bottom. So your point of difference is a very difficult stone to find, but it's worth every every ounce of energy to find it because people will pay more, happily pay more if you're the right fit for them. I was going to say that I've worked with accounting and law firms and they all say the same thing. And we pay the highest quality of service and blah, blah, blah. So what I ask them is break down your client uh, clients for me. It's like one of the accounting firms, they had 50 auto dealerships. Okay. Anytime an auto dealership is looking for an accounting firm, you should be one of two that they're looking at because when you walk in, your differentiator is we handle 50 auto dealerships. If you're walking into a toy store and you're only handling one toy store and the other guy's handling 30 of them, you're not going to be able to beat that guy. Um, yeah. So I, I think that's the way to show in, in the same thing, you know, how you're totally different by saying, oh, we do this, because there's an accounting firm we're using my condo association. They handle 800 uh, condo associations nationwide. I'm like, hey, who's going to know more about this business than these guys? And so exactly. everybody who pitches us uh, can't succeed, can't beat them. You talk about missed marketing opportunities in your book. Could you share a couple? Yeah. So missed marketing opportunities. So that's when I'm kind of getting into the tactics uh, side of the book at the end there. Um, good question. So these are opportunities that pretty much every business uh, has that just is a complete. So one of the things I, I say is like every contact your your company has with 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 a client or a prospect or, or the public at large, every Every contact is a marketing opportunity, and you should never overlook any of them as this benign contact. Um, one of the ones that I, I give an example of a missed opportunity is the out-of-office vacation email. Talk about a huge missed opportunity. I mean, I cringe anytime I send somebody an email and I just get that standard boilerplate out-of-office reply, and it just says, you know, I, I'm out of office. Um, I'll be back next Monday here's a phone number of the office manager. Talk to you later. I mean, you can do so much better than that. An out-of-office reply is a wonderful. I've had my out-of-offices um, forwarded to other people and talk about getting free advertising. I mean, I get comments on them all the time. And really, it's just about being personable and 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 don't just be do a throwaway, you know? An example, like my 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 vacation out of office is something like, hey, I'm so sorry, I must have forgot to tell you, I'm on vacation this week. And my wife told me that if I work, I'm in trouble. So I'm giving 100% of my effort and my focus on my family. But if it's a complete emergency, I know they happen and my family understands, resend your email with kangaroo in the subject line. And I'll get an alert on my phone and I'll get back to you right away. Um, or we send your email with stop family time in the subject line and I'll, I'll get back to you right away. You know, so it's, it's like this personal, honest message, but it still says I, I care and I'm going to be in touch and people are going to think twice about bothering you if you're telling them to put stop family time in the subject line, right? These kinds of things, um, giving them, it's also an opportunity to have a good, strong call to action. You know, I have a podcast also, sorry, I bumped my mic there. Uh, I have a podcast also, and uh, it's focused on the remodeling industry, obviously. But um, so at the end of my out of office, I'm like, hey, have you listened to our podcast too? If you're not, here's how you, you listen, check it out. It's great. You know, every opportunity, don't 
don't look at any communication as, as a throwaway. Um, so that's one of the, the biggest missed opportunities. Yeah, I, I also, there was a, one of my clients, I was interviewing all their employees with 16 people and asking them for uh, marketing ideas. And one of them said, you know, my grandfather, he worked in the mailroom of this business. And every time they would send out a check to a vendor, they would uh, tell the vent, send the vendor a note saying, we'd appreciate any introductions you could make because the more we spend, the more money we make, the more we spend with you. And she said, my grandfather told me they get three new leads a month. I wow. thought, wow, what a great idea. So awesome. we, yeah, so you never know where the ideas are going to come from. And, and I remember the owner saying, really? Like she's the receptionist. What would she know? And she's <laughs> the one that came up with this idea. And That's it awesome. turned out we were getting four or five leads a month from putting that note in the checks. And I love that. Yeah. See, I'm thinking maybe you should be the vice president of sales and marketing. Right. That was really That's good. You fantastic. have in here, uh, many so small businesses rely heavily on word of mouth, and that's for sure. Um, but you talk about taking an active role in encouraging word of mouth. How do you do that? Yeah, so, you know, it's funny. I mean, so many, especially in the in the remodeling industry, but so many small industries, uh, small businesses in any industry really rely on word of mouth. And uh, But they take such a passive role, just, hey, make sure you, you refer a friend or, or that kind of thing. And, and you can really have a, a, a concerted effort into it. And from my psychology days, there's a term that I, I refer to in the book, and, and I really try to say that I want everybody to memorize this term, and it's called schema. Um, in psychology, a schema is a shortcut your brain makes to navigate the world efficiently. So an example of that would be when right now I'm, I came into my office, I sat in my chair nothing happened. I'm just sitting in my chair. The fact that this chair supports me is a schema that my mind created to navigate the world efficiently. So if you didn't have this schema, you wouldn't sit in any chair without inspecting the legs, inspecting the back every time before you sat in it to make sure it was safe. And we don't do that. We have this built-in schema. The reason I say that is because word of mouth relies on stories worth telling. And the stories we share break schemas. So as an example, if you're at a restaurant and you see somebody across from you sit at a table and the chair just explodes out from under them and they go crashing to the floor, well, that's schema breaking because the chair shouldn't have done that. And I'll bet you before the last leg of the chair lands, people are posting pictures on Facebook, right? I mean, it's like, look what I just saw. You know, we want to share stories about anything that breaks the schema, anything that breaks the way the world is supposed to work. And the reason I bring all this up is because that's what you should be doing in your business to encourage word of the mouth. Think about all the things that people come to expect in a transaction with your type of business. What does a normal transaction look like? What's expected of it? What is the schemas? And then find a way to break them in a positive way. And when you do that, people will want to tell that story. When I, you know, oh my gosh, I hired this, this lawyer and it was the craziest thing. He, he did this. I would never have expected that. And these are the stories that will travel. That's how you get word of mouth to travel. And that's how you take an active role in encouraging word of mouth marketing for your business. You have a chapter on pricing strategy. And I think everybody, including me, worries about this. I think everyone struggles unless the market is set with pricing. Please walk us through the formula or process you go to, a, to arriving at a price. Oh, wow. <laughs> 
because it is the hardest thing, you know, and and most everybody's advice is start at a high point because you can come down. But if you start at a low point, you can never come up. This is true, right? Yeah. So I don't do anything super crazy. I think most people and it's it's okay to start with uh, some kind of a cost plus type of a thing, right? It's this is how much it costs. I want to make 50% GP on it or whatever minimum. And you kind of start there. That's a good starting point. But again, it goes back to if you're, if you've positioned yourself correctly and you have that point of difference, you need and can and should charge more. And what that amount is, you need to play with the market a little bit, but people pay more if you're different and you brought up niche, uh, a niche, right? Niching your market is a is a it's a good it's probably the easiest way to differentiate your business if you're having trouble finding that point of difference. Um, saying you just specialize in one thing, right? People will happily pay more for a specialist because you're the expert in that. So don't just fall into the trap. Really, the biggest thing is don't just get yourself sucked into some kind of a cost plus or 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 margin number. And just apply that to everything because because you're you're more likely than not you're under under billing on that, especially if you've got a strong, solid point of difference. The higher, you know, one example, if I have two choices of a marketing company to hire and one specializes in remodelers and one is just a general purpose marketing company. Well, I would think if I'm a remodeler, I want to hire this one that specializes in it. Now, if that one charges $400 an hour and the other one charges $150 an hour, all that does is reinforce to me that they're a better choice. One of the things a higher price does is encourage the fact that you're better at what you do than someone else. It's not a negative thing necessarily, as long as your positioning supports that. It actually works the other way. Well, they must be better. One one example, I often, when I do one of my talks, I kind of show two, most people don't really know too much about like, uh, video technology, like cameras and stuff. And I'll throw two video cameras up on a screen. One's priced $100, one's priced $999. And I just say, which one's better? Guess what everybody says the $999 one, right? It's And it's just a simple thing, but it's like, look, this is the fact. Everybody in here is not charging enough because if you want to be known as the best in your industry, you got to charge for it to, to support that. Price needs to support that you are the best in the industry. And having a higher price than the competition is good for that, not a bad thing. You know, it's funny you should say that. I did marketing work for a pharmaceutical pricing company, and they found out, and I don't want to say the companies, but they found that one of their clients said, we're going to undercut the price of the competition. And they ended up selling less. And when they surveyed the doctors, the doctors said that they felt the efficacy and strength of the product or the more expensive must have been better. So they wouldn't recommend the less expensive product. And it did a billion dollars worth of damage uh, to this company. People's heads rolled. We have a question from the audience. (laughs) Is a startup um, bootstrapping company need help to build out our strategy feeding into an execution plan? Any suggestions? So as a startup, they need help with, could you repeat it again? Yeah, they need help in building out a strategy feeding into an execution plan. Any suggestions? So any suggestions on how they go and build this strategy and then put it into their execution plan. What's the easiest way, I guess, for them to start and we'll kind of build some momentum. Yeah. uh, Get my book. (laughs) (laughs) And and I put that out there. 
No, uh, you know, really, though, all kidding aside, it's not my book. There's there's a lot of uh, do-it-yourself processes and, and templates, but it's it's easiest. I, I, I provide a lot of different templates and things because if, if you just have a systemized process of filling in a blank here and a box there, it, it helps you kind of flush that kind of stuff out. Um, obviously, the other option would be to, to hire somebody, a consultant or somebody to help you out with that. Um, I don't, you get what you pay for. So you got to be able to, you got to be willing to invest in some stuff. I, I, I don't think you should be stingy on, on something like this. This is a huge component. It's, it's the engine of the company. So invest in that and, and maybe put off the shiny tool for a little while. But definitely buy your book. Definitely buy it. Definitely buy the book. Absolutely. Yeah. And by the way, it's it's a short read, very practical and very executable, which is one of the things I liked about this. So my last question uh, to you here is with the pandemic shrinking, will sales uh, still be done virtually because it's uh, such a cost savings and the CFOs really like the idea that you don't have to fly places? Or will you see people in person meetings and conferences coming back to pre-pandemic levels, uh, and, and maybe it will take a year or two, but do you see that coming back? Or do you think how the people still got so used to using Zoom and other virtual ways of connecting with people, is that going to be the majority chunk of how things happen? I, I personally, I feel that we're going to get back to very close to pre-pandemic levels. I, I think everybody's just, I, I can speak for myself. I'm, I'm, I love you, Mark, but I'm tired of looking at you on this little box, right? I'd rather be sitting there next to you, having a conversation with all these lovely people in the audience. Like that would be more fun to me. So, um, so I think we'll get back to it. And yeah, you know, everything comes back around anyway. Even before the pandemic, there, there was this technology still existed, and companies were still flying people all over the country. You know, it, it, it's a, and they were doing it because. It's it's a better experience to be shaking someone's hand and looking them in the eye versus a, a, a virtual phone call. And so we did that before. This technology has been around for a long time before the pandemic. And I think we'll get back to it. I, I agree 100% because we all end up doing multiple things where we're on some kind of Zoom call or something and saying, oh, I'll check my email, I'll do this, I'll do that, when we're not 100% engaged. But we're 100% yeah. engaged when we're actually with other people in person, and that's how you get to know them. Well, I have to say you were terrific. I really enjoyed it. I thought your uh, book was great, and you won't believe this, but we still have people coming on. <laughs> Somebody who's coming on the show now. So again, thank you so much uh, for participating today. We hope you'll come out with another book and want to wish everyone uh, a safe and healthy weekend and look forward to seeing you all next week at our normal time from 12 p.m. to 1 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. Have a great rest of your day. Take care. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening to another episode of The Best Business Minds. Tune in every Friday at 12 p.m. Eastern Time for our live recordings. Go to www.thebestbusinessminds.com for more information and follow us on LinkedIn and Twitter to be kept up to date with our upcoming guests and other bonus material. See you next time.